This is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, supported by UBS. Every time I'm in Los Angeles, I make sure to visit the artist Doug Aitken in Marina del Rey. It's my antidote to spending time in a city that somehow always leaves me feeling disembodied. We go surfing, him very well, me very badly, and I dive into his universe. Doug is a very wide-ranging artist in every sense of the word. He's done projects all over the world, from Namibia to Catalina Island, and his work encompasses everything from music videos to photography to sculpture to massive installations to underwater structures. Music is a big thing for Doug, and he's collaborated with artists such as Beck, Andre 3000, and Jamie XX. Not surprisingly, this podcast goes all over the map, covering everything from meeting Bruce Connor as a teenager to tracking down the man who invented mobile phones. Stick around after my conversation with Doug to hear Jenny Fulton, Art Basel's executive editor, interview LA musician Fatima Al-Qadiri about her move from Berlin to LA, her upcoming film project, and her album, Medieval Femme. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you liked it, make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Doug, as is often the case in doing the research for the show, I discovered something which I didn't know about you, even though you and I have been friends for, it feels like, almost 20 years. I'm curious about this story and it, involving the book The Andromeda Strain, which, based on what I've read, sounds like it was something that actually led you in a circuitous way towards an artistic career. Yeah, so I was really young, maybe in the fifth grade or something, and I went to class like any other day, and um, the teacher looked around the class and said, I have a question, has anyone in this classroom read a book recently. He pointed at me. And obviously, I wasn't really reading a lot of books at that age. So I froze. And then I recalled a book cover that I loved. And I said, The Andromeda Strain. And this teacher dropped what he was doing and and looked at this little child thinking, you know, what is this kid doing reading this book? And it was kind of a strange situation. So the next day, I showed up to class, and I didn't have a seat in the class any longer. And the teacher said, can you come up here for a minute? You're no longer in this classroom. We're sending you somewhere else. And I showed up at this other room, and there was this hippie teacher, and it was she and I alone. And she said, "Um, I want to show you visuals, and I want to know your reaction when I show you these visuals. And I have cards that show visuals of modern and contemporary art. And we'll just go through one by one, and you tell me what your reactions are. I went through, and it was images of Dada, images of futurists, pointillist, pop art, all these things that I didn't really know what they were at the time. It was at a certain point that I got to one card. It was a blue shape with a cutout in it. And I paused at this image, and I just said to her, I said, this is the one. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, this image, this is the one. This is the image that I need to know about. I asked her to write down the name of the artist, and she wrote down John Arp, Dada. So I raced on my bicycle to the public library. I got my mother, and I went to the public library, and I searched and scoured for books on this artist named John Arp. And it was really kind of this beautiful and strange starting point. I had always been making art. I'd always been making things. I didn't really know the word art necessarily, but it felt like this shoe that I'd worn all my life that I wasn't aware of. So your parents were not artists, but they were people who were interested in culture, but also who traveled a great deal. What were some of the trips? What were some of the experiences that marked you the most? I grew up with 
my mother and father, and I didn't have any brothers or sisters, and my folks were really wanderlust. They were constantly on the move, constantly curious about the other, the foreign, the place that they didn't know about, communities, cultures, and people. So from a really young age, I was finding myself in these situations like, okay, we're going to go to Peru and we're going to be in the Amazon for about four weeks, or Russia in the early 80s, or Central Africa. It was strange to me, but also I learned very quickly that the communication with people is all the same everywhere you go. You've talked about this notion of radical crossover between different realms of culture. And what's interesting is that although many people talk about this as a new thing, you trace it much further back as far as I know. You've talked about that you can go back at least as far as, for example, the Black Mountain School. And I'm curious, when you think about this notion of different realms and the divisions or the absence of divisions, what comes to mind? Well, imagine two different things. One is a conversation that we have at dinner tonight with some friends. And that conversation will cross over to film, to art, to music, to the landscape, kind of all of these different aspects. And then we look at our view of culture. In culture, we see a series of silos. We see contemporary art over here, music over there. I think this idea that we see culture as a series of silos is completely wrong to how creativity functions, to how we see the world as individuals. We see the world as kind of this huge kaleidoscopic field of information. And each of us collages that together. We weld it together to create our own personal meaning and structure. And I think that the way that we see culture in the arts should also embrace that. And, you know, there is nothing new about working in a polymedia way. But I think now it's, it's a strange period of time because there is this emphasis on art and capitalism, this idea of art and commodity. And I think in many ways that creates a condition that suffocates the potentiality of art to expand into something much broader. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember you and I one time after one of our morning surfing sessions went to go see the show Radical Women at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. And you and I had very different responses. My response was that it was a lot of art and a lot of names compressed, you know, and that I wished I had seen actually more from each of those artists. And your response was that there was something fundamental which was missing from that show, and that was music. Yeah, I think we're kind of looking at two different worlds when you mention that. You know, one world is the world of exhibitions, which is the distillation of a work. This kind of pretense of seeing something elevated in a white cube gives it a sense of purity. And the flip side of that is an artist's studio or the process of creativity, which is often a very messy, a very subconscious kind of space. And I find that very peculiar that we have this idea of complete and utter isolation as the perfect environment to see an artwork. <laughs> and I'm not saying that I disagree with the white cube as an option, but I think it should be one of many options. And it's interesting because if you look at neurology, if you look at how the brain is working when it's improvising, the brain is actually in this place where kind of everything is electrified, everything is moving at once. And the improviser, whether it's a musician playing piano, for example, is kind of in this state of semi-consciousness where the hands are moving across the keys 
And the brain is kind of in the soft space where it's just deciding the next move, the next move, the next move, and music is coming out. And I think there is a fluidity that I find when I'm collaborating with musicians or working with musicians. There's a little bit more of an openness maybe because what they create isn't such a commitment or it's not so time intensive often. So that idea that a project that I did in Venice, Italy last week, I was able to invite over the musician Jamie XX. And um, Jamie is kind of known for being an electronic musician and an amazing one. I had this conversation with Jamie a week before he came, and he said, you know, I'd really like it if you could get me a piano. And I said, this is a surprise. I didn't know that you played actual piano. I thought you were kind of completely in the digital realm. And he said, he said, I do, but I just don't play it for anyone. It's kind of a private thing. So we did this activation and the performance he did was like an Eric Satie piece meets the 21st century. It was this kind of beautifully complex piano piece. And then he would sample the playing and, and kind of broaden the composition live. And it's moments like that where you can create something in real time, where there's the spontaneity and intuition involved that I really love. You were, I think, strongly influenced by this thing, this notion that Bruce Nauman put forward at one point, which is that you should give an idea 10 days. And it feels to me like as much as you're someone who believes in experimentation and creativity and letting ideas flow, you're also someone who has this notion of building a certain kind of discipline into inspiration or around inspiration. Yeah, I'm working on art all of the time, but it's not necessarily being in a studio that's art making. It's observing, it's absorbing, it's crushing ideas together, merging visuals in a way that they shouldn't be merged, and looking at the results. I find that a lot of my time in the studio is actually dedicated to creating experiments, to stepping into areas that I'm unfamiliar with and seeing what happens. You've had so many projects outside the traditional notion of what an artist does. I think one of the ones that I'd love to discuss is Station to Station, which brought together many, many times of art forms and also this antiquated notion of travel, which is not the plane, but the train. Well, Station to Station was a project that put together a train and transformed the train into a nomadic studio. And then this train went across America for 4,000 miles each location that the train stopped in, we would take over the train station and use it to stage happenings. The train, while in motion, was generating. There were musicians, artists, filmmakers, writers on board that were using it. And with this project, I felt this desire at that time that culture was becoming very fragmented and it was becoming very complacent. I don't want to be someone who talks about these things or complains about them. I want to do something about it if I can. And I felt that maybe I could contribute somehow to creating something that would create friction, that would create a different kind of energy and kind of merge mediums and bring together voices and create moments that are unpredictable and unrepeatable. This idea, it was really based on nomadicism. I felt that if we could make a project that was in motion, you don't have that territorial quality that you have when a museum is in a city and they program their shows and the artist lives in that city or the musicians in their own kind of safe environment. What happens if we uproot everybody and we suddenly go in motion, we go on the road and we discover and we're surrounded by things that are sensory that we've never experienced before. Something else will come out of it. I don't know what, but something will. And that was my belief with that project. And the project 
a lot of artists kind of made projects that could exist only on it. The train itself was kind of used as a studio. Musicians like Ariel Pink or Thurston Moore or Mavis Staples or, I mean, so many different people. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. Last year, a third of online sales by dealers were made to new buyers. The massive move to online lowered entry barriers, providing collectors with increased price transparency and easy access to events and information. How will this transform the market? For more insights, visit ubs.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. It strikes me now that this took place in 2015, which in some ways was maybe this moment where the digital and social media really started to encroach upon our lives, infect our lives. And as I think about it now, it strikes me as an almost anti-digital project. Do you think that's the wrong way to think about it now? And did you ever think about it at that time in that way? With Station to Station, I knew it was an intensely physical journey, but at the same time, we were filming a lot of it. And we were kind of filming these stories as short films so we could push them out and share them with people and kind of democratize a project in a way. And I think in some ways, other projects that I've done more recently have kind of looked at that idea and maybe taken a little bit further because I think that there is this strange place that we occupy now, this kind of one foot in the screen and one foot in the real. I do think that we as a society have a different view, a different visualization of the natural world than we had in the past. Now, at times, it almost seems like this exotic space, this place that we want to go to. Mark, have you been to the mountains? Did you go hiking? Did you touch a tree? (laughs) Which is just absurd to say 50 or 100 years ago. Of course you did. I think that that also kind of goes back to the idea of art and where art is going, because I think that on one hand, there is a kind of return to the real, but it's not the real that we left behind. It's a kind of more vibrant, more infused version of the natural world. So you're saying that the more digitally we live, the richer it feels when we live viscerally? I agree with that. I think that we're seeing the physical world with a new set of eyes. I think it'd be even more interesting if we were forced to take away our cell phones when we did things like going walking into the mountains or going to concerts or even going to see exhibitions. You once said we need to use technology, technology shouldn't use us. And I think it's true, it's always the same thing. Either you use the tool or the tool uses you. One of the pieces, I remember this great show you had in 2018, which was centered around the inventor of the mobile phone, which is kind of where it all began at some level, this moment where everything is connected. How do you think about technology in your work? How do you think about the role that it has in creating the work, but also the role that it has in shaping the viewer, the participant in the work, the person who comes to the work? Well, the work that you were referencing, New Era, was a very important work for me. I was in a restaurant And I was looking around one day, and every single human I saw was on a cell phone. And (laughs) I kind of thought to myself, how did we reach this point when everybody I see is on a screen, absorbed on the screen that's in their hand? I thought to myself, does technology just make itself? (laughs) Does it just move on its own in some sort of way? 
Or is there someone behind this? So I, I came home and I kind of innocently researched the inventor of the cell phone, who created this. And it, the all roads led back to this man named Martin Cooper. And at this point, he was in his late 80s, I think. So I reached out to him and I said, I want to come down. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to film it. And I want to talk about this idea of where this started. And I was almost in disbelief that here was a human, a frail man in his 80s with a white beard who had kind of started this world of connectivity, who had invented the first cell phone and also made the first cell phone call in history. It was interesting because to me, it rehumanized this technology that had moved so far away from the human touch and sensibility. I saw it almost as a mythology. Why did this thing come about? How was it made? Why are we using it? And his philosophy for this was, People at the time in the 50s and 60s were tethered to their phones. They're waiting for phone calls, tethered to cables. And he felt that if he creates a mobile phone, humans are nomadic again, the way they should be. They can wander. They can connect to anyone at any time without having to wait next to a cable. So that was his motivation for this. But the direction it's taken, I think, has so exceeded the original intent. And I think we live in this world that's very much accelerating. And to me, that makes me look at art and say, how does art have a role in this stream, this flow of information? What can art do that's not in that stream? And to me, one of the things that art can do is it can manipulate time. If we look at an incredible artwork, for example, maybe we're absolutely engaged in the present. Everything else dissipates around us our anxiety, our thoughts of the future, our memories of the past, and we're suddenly completely engaged in that moment. Or maybe an artwork is something that activates us. It takes us into a realm or a place that we would never normally be. And I think that we need to really examine what art is to the modern society and where we're going. To me, that's just a question that I think about very much. Doug, I mean, it's interesting. One of the long-standing conversations that we've had is this notion of this kind of inflection point where art will shift from being about objects to being about experiences. And I think Station to Station was one example of that. There are many others. If I look at your career, two of the major breakthrough pieces were the one for the Whitney Biennial, Diamond Sea, and then, of course, Electric Earth at the Venice Biennial. Tell me about those. Tell me first about Diamond Sea, because I think that was the one that really kind of put you on a lot of people's map, at least in America, before Electric Earth did the same for the world at the Venice Biennial. But let's talk first about Diamond Sea and the production of that piece. Diamond Sea was probably the first piece that I had made that I got a little bit closer to where I saw the art that I wanted to make being. Diamond Sea was filmed in Namibia, in the southern coast of Namibia, in an area which is about 70,000 square kilometers. It's a diamond mine that's been closed off to the public access since 1908. After a year or so of trying, I finally got access and permission for us to go inside and create this work, this film, inside this closed-off area. The space was hallucinatory. It was a space where you would find some of the largest machines in the world lumbering through these sand dunes, sifting gem diamonds. And the machines would have almost no one operating them. They would be digitally programmed. But then you would also find these areas where you'd find, for example, 
abandoned ghost towns left over from the German occupation of Namibia that were just kind of filling with sand and beaten by the wind. And this cohabitation between a kind of deep history of the landscape and this modern habitation for me was fascinating. It really kind of made the work. Right. As a result of that, Harold Samon came to you for his first Venice Biennial in 99 and I guess commissioned Electric Earth. Tell me about that one. Yeah, I was really naive. I was in Cologne, and I was in this group show at Museum Ludwig. It was towards the end of the opening, and this large, bearded creature came up to me, and he said, do you know who I am? And I said, no. He said, well, my name's Harold Zeman. And I said, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, well, do you know what the Venice Biennale is? And I said, I've heard of it. And I wasn't pulling his leg or anything. I literally never seen the Venice Biennale. I didn't know who Harold was. And he said, I'm curating it, and I'd like to work with you. I'd like you to be in it. And it kind of was the beginning of this really beautiful friendship, this creative relationship. I was interested in what could be done that was outside of my scope, that was unfamiliar for me. And I just started generating ideas. I think it was three ideas a day for 14 days, just looking at every possibility, every medium. I think I even wrote down an idea of swimming to Venice, Italy, although that was definitely not going to happen. <laughs> but eventually, these ideas reduced themselves down to what became Electric Earth. And what was the production of that? Like, were you producing it in Venice? No, I shot Electric Earth on the West Coast here. It was a piece that was very much about the speed of our society and the individual. And those moments where either you're completely in synchronicity with everything around you, and other moments where you fall out of alignment and you find yourself lost or isolated or desperately left behind. So I was interested in these different time codes between the self and the environment that we've created. I filmed it with a young guy who is uh, history and breakdancing and pop locking. We kind of just went into these nocturnal environments and it was a series of locations that I knew intimately and activated those one after another. And the piece kind of created this linear story out of those. Mm -hmm. These were environments from Los Angeles, right? Which I guess you had been exploring in a very adventurous way ever since you were a teenager. I mean, you came out of sort of punk rock and skateboarding and that whole scene, if I'm not mistaken, as well, I assume, as surfing. How much did that influence your artistic career? Well, I think the, the environment that I grew up in, the Los Angeles of the late 70s, 1980s, was a very, very wild place. There is a definite underground culture to music, to art, to performance art to all these different subcultures that you mentioned, Mark. They all kind of coexisted, but there was this friction, this kind of radical friction that was really in the streets. And it's interesting because I think when people often look at Los Angeles, they say, oh, this city has no history. It's so young. It's so shallow and superficial. But there actually is a quite profound history, but it's just not so much on the surface. One of the interesting things about the LA scene, as I've always heard it described during that period, was the fact that there wasn't a real star system and that the people who were even highly accomplished artists were very accessible. Tell me about meeting Bruce Conner, the legendary experimental filmmaker and artist. I was really young, like 16 or something like that. And I had, I'd picked up this underground newspaper and I saw a listing for an opening tonight. I didn't have a car at the time, so I walked out to the highway and hitchhiked to Santa Monica. <laughs> 
it took a while and I got to Santa Monica and I walked inside this gallery and I saw these small collage works and pen and ink pieces, but there's something enticing about them. But at a certain point, adults started showing up and I became intimidated. I was so young and I was alone and I thought maybe it's time to just go outside and sit on the curb and think about what you just saw. And I saw, you know, Dennis Hopper walking with a cigar, and I knew that was time to get out of there. So I'm outside the gallery, there's an opening inside, and I'm sitting there. This old fellow in denim with a white beard comes and sits down next to me on the curb. He just starts talking. He starts talking about life and art and, you know, starts saying, did you see the show in there? And yeah, I saw it. He's asking me questions. And we're just, he says, you know, do you make art? I said, I do. I make it in my garage. We had this kind of really fascinating conversation, and after a while, it dawned on me, I said, are you the artist whose show is here? And that was Bruce Conner. And he had left his opening to hang out with a 16-year-old kid on the curb and just talk about life and art instead of being inside kind of on show. That makes total sense because I think one of the interesting things about you is that time and time again, you have either met by coincidence or actively sought out people from previous generations of cultural production, whether they were artists or musicians. I read somewhere that you met Mike Kelly because you were wearing a Bongwater band t-shirt and he was wearing a Sonic Youth band t-shirt. <laughs> Is that true, first of all? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I think, you know, Mike just saw this aimless 18-year-old, I probably was, and just sparked up a conversation because he felt like here's a fellow misfit. <laughs> There's a point to that story that we should really talk about, which, you know, is this idea of the professional artist. This idea that I think in some ways people expect artists to play a certain role, to exist in a certain way. But if you really look at the root system that we are part of, often the artists that we look to are the rogue. They're unpredictable. They're people who are misfits that don't necessarily fit into our society. And there's a kind of beauty in that that we need to champion. You know, we need to say it's great to be the outsider and you should let your freak flag fly. <laughs> you left it to go to New York in the early 90s, but the Los Angeles that you grew up in and where you went to art school was a Los Angeles which was radically disconnected from the market. I mean, this was a time where you felt like if you lived in LA and you wanted to become an artist, you had to go to New York. Almost by definition, anyone who was in LA as an artist was not a careerist or professional artist. Am I over-exaggerating? That LA of the past, as far as an artist making a living off their art, I think it was a wasteland. But I think in terms of the quality and the integrity and the tooth of the art, it was a fantastic planet. Well, I mean, maybe these two things are related. Yeah. Because by definition, the people who are making art in LA were specifically not doing it to make money because if they wanted that, they would have moved to New York. Yeah, that's a certain point. And I think that the reason I moved to New York in, I don't know what it was, 92 or something like that, is I had this hunch that if I stayed here, I knew the city, I knew its patterns, and it would be a little bit too soft to do that. So when I moved to New York, I knew one person. And of course, that was New York of the 90s, which was a very different art scene than it is today. Yeah, indeed. And it was really a still a downtown scene at that point. It had maybe migrated from the East Village to Soho, but I felt very fortunate that the people that I met right around the time I moved there were other artists. Matthew Barney, Andrea Zatel, Rick Ritt, people like that who were, you know, just in the city that you would run into over and over. And 
they were all up to something that was very diverse from each other. For me, that was fantastic because I could see that this generation that I was in wasn't about a movement. It wasn't about an aesthetic or a style. It was about individuality. For me, that was key because I didn't care about having a look or having a style to my work. I wanted each piece to express a different concept or idea or question it in a totally wholly different way. So I was kind of working in a way that was almost dematerial. And when did you start incorporating other disciplines like film and music and architecture into your work? I would always try to work in a way where this idea or impulse would dictate what it was going to be, what physical shape or, or not physical shape the artwork might be. <laughs> At a certain point, I had an idea for a film, a short film, but a little story that I wanted to make. But of course, I had no money or no experience for how to film something. I couldn't get a film camera. So I actually rented several videos that had scenes that were similar to what I wanted, and I re-edited them to create a completely new story. So that kind of led a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper into wanting to author moving images, wanting to figure it out and to make my own. You've dealt with a lot of different disciplines, music, architecture, dance, film, and all these disciplines have different kinds of metabolisms. The speed with which an idea can be realized, can be executed is different. Then I'm curious if you thought about the different metabolisms of the disciplines within which you work or with whom you collaborate. Yeah, very much. You have to allow yourself to surrender to time. There are projects where they're going to take three years, five years, eight or 10 years. That's just the way it goes. And there's other projects that can burn hot and quick, and you have to be ready to move on it tonight. To me, I very much like that dynamic range. I like this idea that all mediums are possible, that all time codes are usable, and that art is this elastic, dematerial thing. It can be permanent, and it can be there long after we're gone, or it can be temporary, and it can be very rapid. And that idea that we have this wide, wide open landscape in front of us to explore and to continuously author and use is really what art is very much about. It ties into this bigger notion you and I have spoken about of concerning what is the future of the market? What is the future of artistic production? Talk to me about that a little bit. The future of art production, I think that we have to be incredibly inclusive. And we have to really say everything that's there now is valid. But can we add to that? Can we broaden our scope of what art is, where it is, who it can be collaborated with? how it can be produced and created. That's, for me, a very important point. The way I'd like to see art moving forth in the future is a much wider, broader landscape. If you were 15-year-old right now, my dream would be by the time you're 30, there isn't a word like, I'm a painter, or I'm a sculptor, or I make this or that. You're a person, and you have a voice and a vision, and you share it. And you can do anything and use anything that you want to. Hi. I'm Jenny Fulton, Executive Editor at Art Basel. Fatima Al-Qadiri is an LA-based musician. I caught up with her to find out about her upcoming work on the movie La Abuela and her latest album, Medieval Femme. Hi, Fatima. Great to have you here and thanks for joining us. To start with, why don't you talk to us about Medieval Femme? Medieval Femme, I think for me, the process of it was kind of a lifelong obsession with the sensual recitation of classical Arabic poetry. 
and uh, basically I started to be fascinated by the contradiction between the sensual recitation and, for instance, Al-Khansa, a 7th century poet who is known for her elegies and her grief-laden words and this kind of melancholic longing recited in this way seemed very odd to me and very beautiful. Can you talk about Al-Khansa? I'm sorry, I'm sure I mispronounced that as a figure. You know, why did you find that character so interesting? Oh, she's a fascinating person in Islamic history and in the history of Arabic literature. So she was a contemporary of the Prophet Muhammad's. But basically, she was the daughter of a, if I'm not mistaken, a wealthy tribe and therefore was literate, because you can imagine how many women were literate at the time. And she mainly wrote elegies for her brother and her son. She is the most famous female poet in the Arabic language. And the thing that's really fascinating about her is that she is worshipped by most arch leftists in the Arab world, all the way to ISIS and so on. So the range of her fans is not something that any other artist, living or dead, has. Why do you think this is? It's because the extremists use her poetry because a lot of it is about martyrdom. And and it's interesting because some of it was written in a pre-Islamic sense because she only converted at the end of her life. And then on the other end, her work is still extremely radical for its time because she's such a great artist. There are very few poets that can even be compared to her mastery of the Arabic language. You said previously that the album is rooted in the sensuality of depression. So the thing that I found from reading all these female poets from the 7th to the 12th century, and even today, is that a lot of their poetry was imbued with the sense of melancholic longing. Basically, to me, these poems initiated a consideration of the possession-like nature of depression that transform into a listless and lethargic longing. And I was reminded of my own depression as a teenager, you know, where I wanted so much. I wanted to have the same freedom of movement as men and to be able to trespass into men's spaces and to be able to have the same rights as them and the same privileges as them, especially in a very patriarchal society like Kuwait. Which is where you grew up. Yeah. I wanted to make a record that sounded like an illusion, that sounded like someone having a really elaborate daydream where reality came in in certain segments of it as pain, as distortion. And I felt like The temporal aspect of depression was so interesting, you know, where time is stopping and you can't function, but it's also kind of luxurious in a way because you are not beholden to the nine to five schedule anymore, you know, as a kind of cave of self-reflection and how it can be as as sensual and, and beautiful process. What drew you to LA in the beginning? I definitely needed to leave Berlin. I feel like my time in Berlin had come to an end. I think one thing that you learn from touring is that 
you need to love the city that you come back to. And like, ah, I'm going home. And I never felt that about Berlin. So I knew I had to leave. I'd lived in New York and I originally wanted to go back to New York, but I thought I would try something new. Because obviously you've started working in film, you've been working on film scores. Did that have any impact on your decision to move to LA? was the main reason. I do want to transition into working, let's say, full-time in film. And that's always been my dream, you know, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to make scores. Mm -hmm. You're very, very multidisciplinary. I mean, I know your work from the writing you did with this, for example, the artwork you did for the Berlin Biennial back in 2016, together with GCC. Um, How do you navigate these different worlds? Is it like a red thread that brings your work there together? I feel like when I was younger, I just had unlimited ambition, let's say. And I really wanted to be in all worlds. I wanted to be part of the music industry. I wanted to be part of the art world. I wanted to be a visual artist and a musician. And now I I just feel like I don't want to split my focus like that. It lasted for a period of time. It was fun. It was great. I really just want to focus on music because music has always been my favorite practice and I'm still getting art commissions left, right and center. And it's really annoying to turn them all down, but I really want to focus. There are so many records that I want to make. I have a list on, on my phone of all the titles of the records that I need to make. So I'm on a mission. And of course, in between making these records, there's film scores to be made. I just finished a score for a film this month and it's coming out in October. What's it called? It's called La Abuela by director Paco Plaza. It's a horror film set in Madrid and it's a horror film about aging. And it's about this grandmother and her granddaughter. It's my very first horror film, and it was a very steep learning curve. Hmm. How many album titles are there on that list of yours at this moment in time? Oh my God, like 20. <laughs> I mean, I think that says it all, right? <laughs> but fashion, I always have a deep love of fashion. I think that the fashion collaborations will continue just because they have a very quick turnaround. You know? <laughs> Music is always a last-minute consideration for fashion for some strange reason. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to um, hearing more from you then. Thank you so, so much. I think this is a great note to end on. I think your album's available wherever people want to stream their albums, isn't it? So Spotify, iTunes, whatnot. It's on every platform, pretty much. Cool. Thank you so, so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.